Welcome to our leadership interviews where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders and I get to ask them about women in leadership. I get to hear their stories and soak up their wisdom on life and leadership. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Sarah Kay. Sarah, so lovely to have you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to it, Melissa. Brilliant. So let me touch on your bio so that our audience know who I'm talking to in case they haven't met you before. So Sarah Kay leads the Woods at Sydney studio and Sarah's architectural career spans two decades and three continents, leading the business in London, Melbourne, Sydney and New York. Some of the world's most successful organisations, including Google, Lendlease, Bloomberg, LinkedIn and Macquarie Group, all return to Sarah for her fluency in the language of design and business. Sarah is a passionate advocate for equality within the property industry and mentors many women through to leadership roles. Sarah, once again, welcome. And for our audience, for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you tell us who are you as a human being? What's the interesting story? Um, that would be great. I love talking about myself. Um, I am a New Zealander, so I studied architecture in Auckland. Um, I tell people um, a bit of as, as a joke now, but it really is the truth. Um, I studied architecture because my grades weren't high enough to get into law school. Um, luckily, the assessor for my architectural registration exam did think that that was a joke and put me Anyway, um, but I think it's important because it has, it sort of tells you a little bit about how I practice architecture. So I do um, come at it from more of a business side than probably the purely creative side. Um, so following graduation from architecture school, I was desperate to leave Auckland. So we moved to Australia, ended up in Melbourne because Australia just kept getting better the further south we went. So we ended up in Melbourne, which we loved. Um I got my first ever architectural job in 1998, I think, at a time when um, I think in most professions, but particularly in architecture, you basically had to pay people to employ you. It wasn't that you got paid to work. It wasn't yeah. that type of economy then. I mean, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was pretty hard to get a job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And uh, my first boss actually decided to become a developer. So he shut down his architectural practice and introduced me to these two wonderful men at Woods Bagot, Roger Dowling and Nick Corrales. Um, and that was in 1999. And they they still, you know, are the most influential people in my career and have really pushed me everywhere that I have been and continue to push me now. Um, so my career at Woods Bagot, um, really guided by Roger and Nick, started in Melbourne. I, um, I I had a sort of interesting early career and and not really very conscious or planned. I, I just sort of went where the wind took me. I think I got offered a role in London on Friday and I went on Monday, so I kind of just went, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll do that, to most things that were offered to me at that stage. Um, spent five years in London and and really um, built the business there. So I think that sort of catapulted me into leadership positions probably a little bit earlier than I would have had I not moved. Um, came back to Sydney at the height of the GFC, so learned all about um you know, coming into a studio at very difficult times. I was a new leader and, and made a lot of people redundant, so that was a pretty tricky time. 
and then went to New York for a few years to sort of really work on the engagement and the culture in our New York studio, sort of to make sure that they felt like they were part of Woods Bagot, um, and then have recently returned back to Sydney to lead the studio here. And I think um, I don't know, I don't know if many people in the audience sort of work in the property industry or in project type industries, but um, architecture and and property is a really amazing. A way to work because you work in projects so you become very very close to a group of people in that project for two or three or four years and so the relationships that you build are pretty intense and they last forever so I've got relation you know I've delivered projects in Istanbul and Beijing and Shanghai and just and Dubai all around the world um and I've got these groups of really intense relationships and and sort of people that I know in all of those places stemming from um, those projects and so I really do feel like I am connected into the world um, and have had a, a really great sort of life living that way through Woods Bagot. Amazing I'm just desperate to ask you and this might be like asking you to pick a favourite child but you know have you got a favourite project that you ever worked on? Oh well I mean, the one I'm working on at the moment probably is my favourite. I can go back a little. Um, I delivered a, a project for Google in um, Tokyo whilst I was living in New York, and that was a really, really great favourite because my brother, who lives in Tokyo, had just had a baby. So that meant that I get to got to hang out with my nephew a little bit. So that was, you know, a family favourite. Um, but at the moment I'm working on Western Sydney Airport, and I think that that is probably the first project that I've ever worked on that really 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 will change people's lives and so actually understanding the impact that that will have on accessibility and jobs close to home and all of those sorts of things for people in Western Sydney um, it, it does change my approach to why I do architecture. Amazing now um, I've got so many questions for you Sarah but I know you're a passionate advocate for women What's it like, um, you know, from your experience, your perspective and the women that you've worked with um, and mentored, what's it like um, being a female in the property space? Um, well, we we still have very, very, very many days when I walk into the office and I see meetings going on in our boardroom and there's not a single female in there. And um, we have a... a pretty good uh, balance particularly of women in leadership but then women throughout the studio in Sydney because we do have three or four of our principals are females which is unusual but the industry around us is is you know not nearly as balanced um and and we do struggle to find women to come into um the industry and stay in the industry um and I think we might be at the stage now within Woods Bagot where we have the numbers nearly right, but we don't have, it's they're not real numbers in terms of equity. So um, there are certain gender biases in terms of the work or the roles that, that boys have and girls have within without, within the organisation and, and always has been. I, I know that early on in my career, I started with two two male graduates and and they did the data center work and the car showroom work 
um, and there was a commercial building. I did the interiors work. So so there was sort of this push into interiors because I was a female through an unconscious gender bias um, of my bosses at the time. And we we sometimes make that mistake still. I, you know, I had a female grad say to me um, not very long ago, when can I work on an architectural project? So that bias is still there. There's also probably a bias towards management, um, so people management, client management roles, because females tend to be better at those or um, get pushed into that area. And then the, the design, the sort of holding the pencil and the yellow trace tends to be male-dominated. We, we don't have very many female design leaders in the organisation. Um, and so our numbers are very skewed with that sort of hierarchy of roles and those those gender bias across the roles. So that's really interesting. So even when you say at an organisational level, numbers can look uh, can look a certain way, when you dig into it, there's a whole other story potentially going on. And I think that probably occurs in all organisations. I, I don't sort of, it's nuanced and it's not spoken, but there's certain roles that are seen to be more important or you know, the pinnacle of your career, um, more valued within an organisation. And I, so I challenge other organisations to sort of try and figure out what those are and then look at the gender balance in, in those roles versus other roles. Um, Great question. So, okay, let's go back to you. You've had a wonderful long career with the one organisation and I don't know whether that's typical. I was very similar I don't know whether that's typical within the industry or there's something that that you found where you are that has enabled that. Yeah. Um, I have I jokingly always say if you've worked for the same company for more than it used to be 10 years, but actually now I think it might even be five. If you work for the same company for more than 10 years, you're just a loser who can't get another job. <laughs> so, is that the pep talk you give yourself in the morning, is it that one? <laughs> I mentor people. Um, I architecture is quite interesting. Our projects take five or ten years, so you can't get very good at it very fast. And this and this is a really um, wonderful conundrum with the next generation. And so I spend a lot of time in in um, pod reviews or, or um, development reviews with the younger generation, and they say, "Why haven't I? Why haven't I progressed? Why aren't I getting promoted?" And so, well. Yes, you want to go faster, but projects still take five years and you need to have a couple of those under your belt before you can actually move on to the next stage. So it is a slow career. Um, so I think that does make it easier to stay within the same organisation for a long time. So I think it is um, quite common. I know that um, some of the people in multiplex, I've been with my company for 23 years, people within multiplex who is a tier one contractor in Sydney or in Australia, they have been at the company for 35 years and their children now work at the company. So that's actual longevity in terms of an organisation. Um, but I have been lucky in that I have worked in different locations. So so every time I've had a new studio to lead or a new role within that studio, um, it has felt like a new job um, and it has been a new challenge. And so it has, and those have sort of been in five-year Lock. So I think that's how um, I haven't got bored with it and have always felt challenged within the organisation. Was there a point in your career, I'm always fascinated um, about, you know, was there a point where you got really intentional about your career and thought, you know, this this is what I want to do, 
and, and where I want to be? It was, but I tripped over it. I, I, it, it happened and then I went, oh, I know what I want to do. I don't think I ever have before. And um, so it was, I, I think it was about 2013 or 14, so when I just moved back to Sydney and my CEO at the time sat me down and said, how are you going, Sarah? Do you know what? I'm great. I'm in a local market, so I don't have a global role. I've got a local role. I'm getting, I know my market. I walk down the street, people know who I am. I'm doing architectural projects. I'm working on commercial architecture, not interiors. So I'm happy. I'm doing really, really well. I was like, oh. And I think that was the first time I'd actually articulated what it was that was making me happy within um, the workplace. It was 16 years into my career, so it took a while for me to become intentional, and I accidentally figured it out. And then my CEO at the time said, great, I want you to be the global interiors lead. <laughs> I said, sure, whatever. Um, and, and you know, I was happy to say, sure, whatever, I'll, I'll do that, and I do, did it very well for a long time. I think just knowing where I wanted to end up. It didn't matter that it might be delayed for a few more years because my role was going to be different. At least I knew what I wanted for the first time. And so that was sort of enough. Mm. Um, but I did, I had a thought a little while ago about my career. I always said yes to everything that was presented to me. And I think I've in the past when I've asked, what's the best advice you can give for the next generation? It's, it was always say yes because it always opens up new opportunities you just you don't know where it's going to take you um it's worked really well for me but I actually think that that's bad advice and I think that the next generation should be more intentional and more considered before they say yes and think about what doors might be closing because you're opening that one and I think my generation was encouraged to say yes because, you know, it worked really well for the powers that be because they got a whole lot of yeses and moved people around the world and <laughs> got people yeah. to do what they wanted them to do. But I don't think it is necessarily the right thing to do. I think you do need to be more considered. So that does open up a really interesting question because I think that is fantastic advice. You know, do you reflect back and think there's some yeses that that maybe you would approach differently if you had your time again? I mean, we can't. It's hypothetical. but. I knew what I knew today. Um, I would have made different choices. Um, there was a, there was one point in my career that was move to London, be client facing, win work, lead the studio, or stay in Australia and be the two IC design lead on the Ivy project for um, Mirabelle. Yeah, and I was sort of young enough and naive enough and didn't really understand where my career would go to just think, yeah, London, let's go. No, that's not going to be an opportunity again. Let me go and do it. Um, potentially, if I'd made the other choice, I would be a female design leader in in architecture, which is really, really unusual and and really would be a place to drive change and to sort of be a trailblazer. Um uh, you know, other things would have happened along the way also and, and um, probably would have been a slower sort of career trajectory as well. Yeah. So, yeah. I think that's fascinating, though, for anyone in your space to hear your thought process about that and also to think back on the reflection. I think that's where people can kind of ask themselves potentially, 
I don't know what what is the right or the wrong thing. Do we ever know? So why do you think you know that I'm super passionate about um, more female CEOs, and we don't see enough broadly um, across our companies? Why do you think that's the case? Or do you agree with me firstly? And do you think it's the case? Yeah, I do agree with you. Um, and I I think that we're about to see a change in that because I think we are seeing already a change in, in what that role is. Um, and I think that there is a traditional CEO role that was maybe a little bit more um, sitting on top of an organisation, being, and you know, better than everybody else, above everybody else, in control of everybody else, very, 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 you know, controlling and um, all over everything, quite ego-driven in some ways. And I think that traditional definition, unofficial definition of a CEO role or the way it sort of needed to be done is not that attractive to female leaders, um, not that easy to do if you've got children or family commitments because you have to be everywhere and travel everywhere and do it all on your own and, and you know, maintain your ego and your confidence 100% of the time, um, which is not, not that natural for females. And I think that the role of CEO is starting to change and it is actually something, somebody who is in the business, who, who is able to push people up and have a, a leadership team who are able to support them um, and and get the best out of people as opposed to be the best of the people. And, and so I think that as that change becomes more embedded in more organisations, it will be a very equally attractive role for men and women. That's fantastic. And you did some study recently, didn't you, that I think you came across a quote in that space that I thought was was lovely. Can you share that? Was that, I'm trying to think who it was, was it Clayton Christensen or someone like uh, that? Yeah, it was Clayton Christensen um, talking, in, and, yeah, talking about CEOs, um, and it was a while ago I think that he said it, but, yes, talking about CEOs who are in the business who know all of the processes and the systems and the way things work are able to, and she is able to, which is why I love the quote, because it was, you know, from this very, very old school guy in Harvard who <laughs> understood the difference. Um, she is able to sort of tweak and push and, and drive things from behind or, or below and create really great outcomes that are often um more correct than than somebody who doesn't actually understand the stand the intricacies of how the business might work and sits above it. Um, and and yeah, so he was seeing that change in the role some years ago now. I love that. So back to you again. Have there been points in your career where you'd say, um, you know, you brought up confidence just before about that's not all that natural necessarily for people to maintain that level of confidence all the time. Has yours faltered along the way? Um, every week. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Tell us more. Um, Tell us how you keep operating uh, under those yeah. in confidence. And I do, I have a bit of a cycle. So I do, um, and I didn't realise I had the cycle until my husband sort of says to me, sure, tell me next week whether you love work or not. And sure enough, next week I love work again. Um, so, it, so it is really a cycle. And I think that what I what I understand because of the way my husband 
deals with me is that it's situational. So, so the things that are really freaking me out at a point in time are a situation or or something that's happening right then and there. It's solvable. It will be solved by next week. The role, the organization, um, you know, the the people that I work with every day, that's all good. And that and that's what keeps you going and that that's what sort of keeps you um in your confident moments. And the things that bring you down are just the the points in time. And so you have to really just ride through those points in time. Um, and I think I I often tell people that they need to use the Tupperware containers in their brain more effectively um, because compartmentalizing things is a really great way of dealing um, with that stress. And so, you know, it's a thing. Keep it contained. Don't let it spread out into everything else. Keep it keep it as big and as, as sort of contained as it should be. And how many Tupperware containers have you got going on in there? Yeah, I think I've probably only got two. I've got the bad stuff Tupperware container and the good stuff Tupperware container. <laughs> so long as you've been, you know, you just keep the lid on the bad stuff one, then there's a lot of good stuff going. And what helps you amplify the good stuff container? Um, I, well, I think that um, I was asked a little while ago, what's your, um, what's your sort of no-go? What are your areas? at work that you know you don't let work impact on um and my my list of priorities really was family exercise work um and i think so long as i keep those things in that order of prioritization then i feel in control of things and i know that i'm sort of living my life um i i and it's easy for me to say that now because my children are older um, when my children were younger, I used to say, just so long as you can balance your guilt, so yeah. long as you feel equally guilty at home as you do at work, as you are do to your friends, then you're in a good spot. Don't try to eliminate guilt. Try to balance the guilt. So it does change in, in different stages of your life. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. I love that, you know, and I'd love to, you know, how did you really work out what mattered to you along the way? You know, we've all got the same number of hours in a day and things like that. So how did how did you work that out? Um. I think COVID actually helped a little bit. I think it was probably a little bit accidental. I, I think that my travel schedule um, and time with the kids wasn't a priority until it was able to be one. Um, and I, I spent some time in Melbourne a couple of weeks ago and my youngest said to me, oh, that's right, you used to go away all the time and we never saw you. And I was like, yeah, you did, you survived. Um and exercise probably came into my life during COVID as well. And I, I really do think that having a hobby, um, whatever it is, is really useful. I can remember once a long time ago in, in an interview somewhere, somebody asked me what my hobby was. And I was so struck. I just didn't have one. And so we'd just been away on holiday and there were some kayaks in the garage at the house. Bed. I was like, go 
kayaking. I, I've never touched a kayak. Well, so kayaking. Okay. So now the ongoing joke is that kayaking is my hobby. Um, but now I actually do have some hobbies and I love running and I love going to the gym. And um, it is quite incredible. I can't sort of articulate why, but the the feeling of control and you have complete and total agency over your exercise and over what running races you're going to do and how your training regime is going to work and how you're going to get to that next milestone. It really does help, I think, for you to figure out how to do things in your career and how to get to your next role, um, but then also really just helps with mental health and space and capacity. And, and, and it is a feeling of having control over something, I think, that helps you with your mental health. I love, I mean, absolutely those benefits are so clear and I think so critical for people in their careers. I love your response to the question around that panic of someone asking what's my hobby and, um, you know, clutching at the nearest thing that you can find because it's a reality, isn't it? You know, it's a reality for so many women throughout their career that, you know, there's only so much to give. You've given it to here and here and, unfortunately, we end up putting ourselves at the bottom of the pile. So. Um, yeah, incredible. I just, I wonder about this whole, you know, burnout. We hear so much more about, um, you know, some real challenges and I just would love your perspective on that. And is that a challenge in your industry? I mean, so it is still, and it was definitely, when I went to university, if you didn't do an all-nighter, prior to handing in your final submission or your design submission, then you weren't working hard enough. So the idea that you work as long as you possibly can to get an outcome, not as smart as you possibly can to get an outcome, is absolutely and totally ingrained in architects from their days at university and continues all the way through. So it's and it's the worst part of our our industry. It's um, the biggest reason that we don't have proper equality in terms of men and women um, in our industry because you, they, people just cannot work the hours that are expected. Both of the organisation expects it, but the individual expects to give it also. So. So this question around sort of where does the responsibility for avoiding burnout lie um, is very, very topical to our industry. And I really firmly believe that it's a 50-50, that it's partially the organization's responsibility, but very, very much the individual's responsibility as well. Um, and I often sort of say to people, you know, at its core, this this relationship that Woods Baggett, me, Woods Baggett and you have is that you give me your time and expertise and I give you money and it's equal. And that and so I don't I don't expect anything more from you and you can't expect anything more from me, Woods Baggett. So I won't make you happy. I won't make you feel fulfilled. It's it's a business transaction that, and and I know that that's not true. But actually, sort of bringing it down to that level and making sure that people understand that um, their they need to have their parameters and their rules around how much they will give um, is really important. And I think that making 
sure that you do have things outside of your life that will give you your fulfillment, will give you your happiness, will will give you your sense of achievement. And that's why running is such a simple one to see. You go, actually, do you know what? If I achieve that, I will have a sense of achievement. If I do that 10K run, I will have a sense of achievement. And so having those things outside of work means that you don't have as much expectation for needing to get it from work. And I think that helps you to manage hours as well. Are there, are there penalties, do you think, though, for people that try and do that? And, and I don't mean no. overt penalties, but are there penalties in terms of potentially career progression or anything like that? No, I think there there is absolutely ways to be present, to show up, to do great work, to do it in a really smart way, to manage your team's workload also, so they're doing it in a smart way, to be efficient, to be effective, to get it to without it needing to be associated with amount of hours. Um, we're really, really, um, because of my, and I consider this quite honestly, because of my influence, other leaders in, in the studio are not nearly as um, pro working from home as I am. Because we're a very hands-on sort of tactile, you know, workshoppy, creative um, organisation. But um, we are very... Um, think, uh, sort of accepting of working from home. Um, we've had lots of people who have family in Europe or overseas who post-COVID actually wanted to go and spend some time with their parents and so worked for us from Europe for six months or worked for us um, in other parts of the world, which works fine, you know. So, so I think that um, it definitely... We can definitely do our work better. Our clients, particularly when they're managing contractors, so we're working with contractors who are on site, they often expect us to be available um, sort of quite long hours. Um, but I think, yeah, you can manage that. And and during my career, I've always very noisily sort of got up at five o'clock and, and left the office and said goodbye, going, going to do this, going to do this with my kids. Um, so that I'm sort of leading by example in that regard. Um, and I think that does make a difference. I love that. I often talk about I would do exactly the same thing, make sure people saw me um, and was really visible about it. And when I interviewed Sally Bruce, um, so she's currently the COO and CFO at Culture Ant, um, and she she led a, a bank along her way and has had an extraordinary career. And she just said this thing that I always remember around, um, you know, you can talk about all of this stuff and you can give people permission to do this stuff, but unless you do it yourself, it just sounds like bullshit. Absolutely. And we had um, pre-COVID. I can't believe this was such a big deal now because post-COVID is completely not, but pre-COVID, one of our male principals decided to work from home on his fifth day. And that was a re- that was a really big deal, and not that long ago, like I don't, probably five years ago, yeah. that for him to you know potentially sacrifice his leadership. I mean, he it wasn't sacrificing his leadership, but slow down his progression by working from home one day a week was a big move. But he did that to make sure that it was seen to be okay for parents, females and males, to to take that time. Brilliant. That's fantastic. So, you know, let's just talk about leadership. It's pretty challenging at the moment from a leader's perspective. Like from your point of view, what do you think are the three biggest challenges you see people dealing with? Uh, 
and this is probably very specific to my business, which is um, one one global studio. So we're one one organization with one culture, one driving goal, very very sharing in terms of resources and stuff across all sixteen of our studios, and. Um, Keeping that global cohesion is very challenging at the moment, and that is really just because things got very localised over the last three years. Everybody's very focused on their lane. Travel means that people aren't seeing each other as much. So feeling like one business across the globe is challenging at the moment and and requires a lot more thought um, and, and sort of intention in terms of bringing people together. So I, I think that's one thing. Um, I think that we are moving to a time where purpose and community and social responsibility um, needs to be the driving force of a business. And it wasn't that long ago that shareholder return and profitability was the driving force of a business. And um, so, so making sure that that transition from one to the other um, is made and is made smoothly, I think, is a real challenge. Um, I think if you if you've got a new business that has was born of purpose and and born um, with a social conscience, it's quite easy. We're, we're a hundred and eighty year old business that really, you know, has been about creating buildings but making money for for a long time and so how do we actually transition into being much more community focused and sustainability focused and um thinking more about our purpose as we move forward um and then number three i think and i feel a bit silly saying this because i'm sure it's always been this way um but just keeping up with change and keeping up with um just the dynamic nature of our of our world, it's changing. It seems faster than ever before. And that's um, around, you know, politics, uh, economy, um, all of those sorts of things that I know have always been going on forever, but they it just feels to be a little bit faster. Um, and making sure that we're keeping up with innovation. So being able to see five years ahead and know where our business needs to be, um, yeah, that's, that's hard work and constant and really difficult. They're fantastic reflections and the global cohesion one was really interesting because, you know, I, I think I had a perspective that um, that maybe COVID had made that less relevant, the, the locations and things like that, because we could all do whatever we needed to from anywhere. But I hear what you're saying around, you know, kind of closing in and focusing on what you needed to do with your group and then now it's how do you, how do you expand that? I think it's a little bit geopolitical as well. It's the first time that I've noticed that um, different countries are in different cycles in terms of their economic recovery and or or not. So UK, US going into recession, China's just coming out. Where so it's it, whereas it used to feel a lot more that everyone was in the same bucket, um, and and then yeah, sort of geopolitical relationships change um, pretty quickly at the moment as well. Incredible. Now, I want to move us on to um, another subject, which is just feedback. It's it's difficult, um, I hear, it's difficult for a lot of females to get the feedback they need to grow in their career. And um, 
you know, so I often ask people, I think there's a bit of a feedback crisis going on. You know, feedback is softened when it's delivered to females and it's not done from a negative perspective. It's done because of an unconscious bias potentially. Tell me your journey with feedback and and growth in your career. Um, yeah, this is a very interesting one because I have always been told that I am oversensitive and I take things too personally and I get defensive. And I believe that. I, I do believe that. Um, and so I think probably I needed coaching or or maybe to learn how to get feedback earlier in my career and to actually understand you know that it's it's not personal and it is it's in order to make you grow and I'm, I'm sure that people told me that along the way but I, I needed to know it more um but I think that I've always had pretty indirect um soft, softened, read between the lines kind of feedback. And so I've probably overread between the lines. And so when when it's not direct and it's not clear, it's not necessarily softer or nicer to hear. It can actually be harder to hear because you you're, you extrapolate it further than it needs to go. Um, and I have discovered that if I just have an example, then I get it. Then I absolutely and totally understand what the point is. And that sensitive or oversensitivity or defensiveness really goes away because there's an example and I get it and I, I can move on with it. Um, so I try very hard to make sure that I do that um, in all of my feedback. But it's interesting because I, when I'm giving feedback, I've learned not that long ago um, how to figure out who you're speaking to because you, you're either speaking to somebody who the, the smallest hint of feedback they'll extrapolate to being bigger. Or you might be speaking to somebody who it needs to be very, very clear and very, very strongly stated for them to hear any amount of feedback. And it would be generalizing to say that that was men and women. It's not always. But um, you you really need to have a little chat first just to understand which one of these people you're dealing with um, and then make sure that you are giving it to them clearly but I think I think I'm guilty of with those softly people that you know are going to going to extrapolate. Sometimes being less clear because of that. So it doesn't mean that they need the feedback to be less clear. They just need the feedback to be minimized slightly. They don't need all ten examples. Maybe just one. But then they've got an example that they can work with. How do you work out, you know, what are the questions you ask to work out? Are they going to be the person who extrapolates or the person who needs the sort of right between the eyes? One, I, I think my technique is to talk about something that I've done or something that somebody else has done as an example of, um, you know, similar to what I want to talk to them about. And and um, you can you can sort of tell from that conversation because quite often the sensitive people will be like, oh, do I do that ever? And then you sort of can lead into that, whereas the not sensitive people are like, oh, my God, yeah, that's so terrible. <laughs> so you can tell straight away. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love that. Um, what do you want, um, you know, people joining your industry, and I'm going to say females joining your industry, what do you want them to know? 
Um, but they can do anything in their career, regardless of what their family situation is or their personal situation is, by the the relate their relationships with the people around them. And I and I think that um it's so obvious, but we we haven't figured it out until now that a single female can't do everything because there's all these other things going on um, at certain times in her life. But two females with the same things going on, working together, can do everything. And so figuring out how those partnerships and, and relationships can help you to reach your full potential in three days a week or, um, you know, at a time when you need to be leaving the office at 5.30 every day on the dot, find those partnerships that allow you to do role that you want to do not the role that you think you need to do because of because of your extending circumstances and have you had to you know when we talk about the sort of intentional side of a career have you had to ask for what you've wanted along the way I haven't I've been asked which I see as a flaw in me and well a, a, a sort of the a typical female trait of waiting to be asked as opposed to um having the confidence to say actually do you know what I can do this job and it and it always has been oh obviously I can't do that job because no one's asked me to do it mm-hmm. as opposed to oh, I can do that job that's that my next role and my trajectory um and and luckily, along the way, most often somebody has said, hey, you should put yourself forward for that job or you, please, please do this. But if they hadn't, I would have missed out on a lot because I didn't have the confidence to put myself forward. And um, I think I try very, very hard to, to um, not make gender stereotypes because I have two young daughters who, you know, aren't stereotypically female at all. Um, but you do sometimes. And I really do think that, the females tend to look at what they the reasons why they couldn't do something that the areas where they might be deficient and so I would have to work on that area and that area before I had the skills to do that whereas males typically see their strengths and say well I'm going to apply those strengths to those role that role and and it will diminish any deficiencies I have because those strengths will pull me through and somehow I think our system or our process and our workplace needs to create um, an environment where that difference um, doesn't disadvantage women because at the moment it really does. Yeah, it's a great perspective. So this sounds like such a natural time to ask you the final question I ask everybody, which is from your perspective, Sarah, what does brave feminine leadership mean and do you think it needs to change? Um. Uh, and I think it is that. I think it is women having the confidence to stick their neck out, to try something that they might fail at and to um, really push themselves into their next role, even when they're not 100% confident that they have all of the skill sets to do it. And And I know personally how brave you need to be to do that because it's not natural and it's not, um, yeah, it's it's not what we tend to do. And so finding that bravery and pushing yourself forward, I think, is really important. But I think maybe the trick to it is 
and it's sort of around that traditional CEO role versus new version of CEO role, push yourself into a position that will challenge you because you know you've got the backing of your team, because you know that you've got people behind you who really want you to succeed and will support you to succeed. And I think that that is stereotypically, again, um, our superpower is females that we tend to bring people with us and, and empower those around us. And so know you can do it because you know that you have the trust of your team to do it with you. Incredible. Thank you so much for adding your voice to our conversation. No doubt you need to head off um, and do some kayaking now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for um, for joining me today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much and really great questions and no cats or dogs. <laughs> we made it with no cats or dogs. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.